Jeremiah chapter 16. Now, I didn't want you to think that I was going to say that Zig actually knew Jeremiah. So I didn't want you to get that in your minds. All right? I just wanted you just to know that. Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. That's, we're going to study down through verse 13 this evening. <clears throat> and then next week, uh, we'll pick right back up. Uh, what I need to say is, of course, the first 13 verses uh, is kind of the bad news. Next week is the good news. But we'll touch upon the good news a little bit when we close. But Jeremiah 16, verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them, and their fathers who begot them in this land. They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. But they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. Judah was given ample opportunity to repent of their sins, their sins of rejecting the Word of God, rejecting God Himself, and began to worship other idols and uh, did so while believing all along that everything was okay because they went to temple and uh, they did their sacrifices and the prophets, being the false prophets, told them everything was okay, nothing was going to happen bad to them, so... Uh, they were under that particular impression. And of course, Jeremiah was called by God to go to them and tell them that's not true. Because you have forsaken me, I am going to have to judge you. So that's where we've been through all these first 15 chapters of the book of Jeremiah. And as we enter into chapter 16, one side study as we go along with this book is, is Jeremiah's own life. You know, we're, we're beginning to learn about Jeremiah, learn about his heart, learn about the things that he's dealing with as he's having to tell his own people that God's going to judge them. And for him to hear from God, uh, Jeremiah, don't pray for these people because I'm not going to hear your prayer. I'm going to judge them. You prayed for them uh, for years and, and, and yet now you, we've come to this point. So don't pray for them any longer. And Jeremiah still wants to reach out to his people. Who wouldn't want to do that? So as we enter into chapter 16, Jeremiah was probably now at his lowest point emotionally in his life and ministry up to this point. I can assure you that by chapter 20 he'll be even lower. But at this point he's the lowest in his life 
uh, emotionally and in his ministry as well. And even though he had been honest with God, we saw that last week in chapter 15, he had been honest with God about his concerns over the people of Judah and the Lord's steadfastness in his decision to render judgment upon them. In other words, God says, this is going to happen, it's going to come, it's going to, it's going to take place. There's nothing you can do to keep this from happening. The Lord has to rebuke Jeremiah of his doubt and of his self-pity. And if he hoped to serve God and to continue to serve God, Jeremiah needed to repent. So go back for just a few verses. Go back to chapter 15, verse 19. And look at the last three verses. And notice what the Lord is saying to Jeremiah. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, he's saying if you return in the sense of repenting from where you are with me, if you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. In other words, get out everything from your mouth that, I, you know, that you're saying to me now. Get it out of the way because what I'm going to use is the pure the pureness of my word through your mouth. And then let them return to you, but you must not return to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall. In other words, I'm going to protect you. And they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. Now, the remedy for his earlier woe, if you go back to verse 10, where he says, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me. In other words, he's saying, Oh, woe is me for even having been born. The remedy for his earlier woe was the Lord's statement to Jeremiah in verse 20, when he says, For I am with you to save you and deliver you. And if we can get it into our own minds and hearts, that, God, that that's God's message to us as believers in Jesus Christ. That He says, no matter what you're going through, even if you're going through this, the, the worst struggle in your life, if you're going through emotional ups and downs in your life, no matter what it is that you're going through, if you will remember that I am going to be with you, and I'm not going to leave you, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to deliver you, I mean, no better word could ever be given by God to one of His servants anywhere or any time. I'll be with you. Listen, you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, to, to Isaac and to Jacob in Genesis 26, verse 3. God says to Isaac, dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. To Jacob, he says in Genesis 31, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family and I will be with you. And then the promise came to, Mo to Joseph as well as to Moses. First of all, to Israel, who is Jacob, in Genesis 48, verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you. So from his very own father, he's hearing those words. God is going to be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Have you noticed how many times the word land or lands is coming up here? I think that's pretty significant. What's happening right now with the people in Judah? I'm saying here in, in Jeremiah chapter 16, up to this point. He's getting ready to kick them out of the land. All right, just, just so you'll know where, where we're at. In Exodus 3 verse 12, 
God speaking to Moses. So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Where is he going to take them? To the land that's promised to them. As, and then to Joshua, we see that very same promise given to him. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Where is Joshua going? He's taking the people into the land. And then lastly, and there's a lot of others, but, but even Jesus to his disciples. Listen to what he says in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe in all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's at the end of the age? But the true land that we seek. Folks, what a promise that is. What a promise that is for us to realize we are, when we are walking with God, when we are turning back to God, when we are turning to God through every circumstance and every situation in our life, He says, I will be with you. There can be no greater, greater word from God. You see, and if that is the case, then where is our life with God today? Where is that life? Because even when we are at our lowest spiritually, even when we are at our lowest, the Lord reminds us of His faithfulness. You see, He's not looking for our faithfulness because we can be faithful one day and unfaithful the next. But the Lord reminds us of His faithfulness to ever be with us, to always be with us. And this thought is significant in the life of Jeremiah because of the special conditions now that the Lord adds to Jeremiah's life just about ten years out, of, out from the judgment that was, was coming upon Judah by the Babylonians. If you remember back when we started Jeremiah, it was about forty years out. Now it's ten years about 10 years. And the Lord commanded Jeremiah. Now remember, he's at his lowest at this point. And now the Lord commands Jeremiah never to marry and rear children and rear children. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord uh, the word of the Lord also came to me saying, "You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place." Now that's a strange statement for God to say to Jeremiah who's a Jew. For the Jews honored marriage and the rearing of children. Now this was intended as an object lesson. We've seen this happen with Jeremiah. We saw it happen with Isaiah and his children in chapter 7 and 8 of Isaiah. Uh, it happens in, in, uh, with a prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea in the first three chapters of his prophecy. He is told to marry a prostitute as an object lesson to Israel. And Jeremiah, there's still some other things going on with Jeremiah that's yet to come. But this was intended as an object lesson for the people, but in the course of this command, Jeremiah was denied this normal relationship that was cherished by all the Israelites. Society of that day held marriage and family in high esteem. 
God had created man and woman to be companions and to establish the family as the basic institution of society. And I want you to listen carefully to Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 and 28 because of the wording that God uses. I think it's pretty clear what he's saying. God, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is before the fall. But the establishment of marriage, the establishment of the, of, 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 the, of the bond of marriage is made very clear when he says, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them for this particular institution. Now, children were necessary in order to pass down the family name, property and wealth to succeeding generations. And in light of all of these facts, society considered marriage and children absolutely essential. And in fact, failure to marry or to have children was considered abnormal and barrenness was actually a curse. And so God's unusual command for Jeremiah not to marry meant that the prophet's lifestyle would flow against the stream of society and ensure that he would experience isolation and deep loneliness. In other words, the purpose of all of this was for God to show that the coming catastrophe would disrupt every and all normal relationships. The coming catastrophe would, would disrupt every and all normal relationships. Hence, Jeremiah's life was to be a sign as a warning to the families of the nation that family life would be severely disrupted due to the enemy invasion that was coming, the invasion of Babylon. Now, when you read verses 3 and 4 with that thought in mind, It says, For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them, and their fathers who begot them in this land. Listen carefully. They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. But they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. Do you know what that word refuse means? They shall be like refuse, manure, dung. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. Another another reason for this command from God to Jeremiah was that the people living in Judah then were soon going to die such horrible deaths to the extent that the, de- the dead would not even be buried. And it wasn't that they couldn't be it wasn't that they wouldn't be buried, it was that they couldn't be buried because there were so many who were going to be dead. 
which was, by the way, when you did not bury someone, was a dishonor to the Jewish people. And think about this. It was a dishonor, a dishonor to the Jewish people because they realized that when they were given the law of God, God gave them the law because God was a God of life, not death. So life was revered. And folks, I, I mean to say that life was revered from the moment of conception to the very end of life whenever God would grant that. Do you understand the, the extent of that? That's life. Perhaps the Lord also wanted to spare Jeremiah the sorrow of seeing his wife and children die in this manner. Don't take a wife and, and children because they would have to go through this. Perhaps God's sparing him that sorrow. Because the sorrow connected with the Babylonian invasion would be much greater than the joys of family life if he were to marry and father children. And there would still be time because, as we said, there was about ten years left, ten years to go. And if he were ever asked why he wasn't married, and, and I think this is an important thought too, but if he was ever asked why he wasn't married, he had the opportunity then to impart God's message of the coming judgment. First of all, God commanded me not to be married, but this is the reason why. And we certainly know that when a terrible judgment of this magnitude uh, were to occur, that great lamentation and mourning would be exhibited, which actually leads us to the next section of our text, verses 5-7. through seven. Notice what it says here. For thus saith the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning. In other words, do not enter into a house that is, that is prepared for a burial or a funeral. Do not enter into a house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. Don't go to weep or, moan, or mourn for them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord. Loving kindness and mercies. Those three things were taken away. Peace, loving kindnesses, and mercy. Peace, love, and mercy. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. I'll explain that in a moment. Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them. This was another custom that they would break bread, you know, in, in, in honor of, of the dead, to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Again, another tradition. But Jeremiah wasn't to display the normal emotion of grief or to offer comfort when someone died. And there were two reasons for this. Two reasons. First of all, it was to show that God had withdrawn His blessings of peace, love, and mercies. And then secondly, it served as a reminder that those who would die during the fall of Jerusalem would not be buried or mourn, and the survivors would not find anyone to console them in their grief. Besides, any public expression of grief would seem insignificant simply because none were unaffected by the tragedy. In other words, everybody would be affected. Everybody would be affected, and any public expression of grief it would be just insignificant because everyone would have lost someone. Anyone alive would have lost someone. Can you understand the enormity of 
the gruesomeness of the death, that those who were still alive were overwhelmed by what they saw that they could not mourn. Because even if they did, it seems insignificant to the death itself. I mean, that's a powerful thought. I I oftentimes wonder about those soldiers that had to enter into, into camps where, where Holocaust victims had been buried or left out in the open and, and, and needing then to, to do what they could to, to give them decent burials, which they couldn't do in many cases because there was just so many of them. And we've seen some of the, you know, some of the videos, some of the film that had been taken at that time, and it was just it's so, it's so disheartening to see, especially when you think of how precious life is to the, to, the, to the extent that they wanted burial. And it's a dishonor if, they, if, if there wasn't. It, it almost gives you some kind of a picture of, 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 of what the Holocaust would represent to some degree. And so something similar actually would happen to Ezekiel as well. I'd like for you to turn there because I want you to see how com- comparable this is. And maybe it give, even gives you a little bit of, more of an idea of what, what this is talking about. Because in, in Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 15, all the way down through verse 24, I'm going to read it in sections to you because I think it's important to see the comparison here. But in Ezekiel 24, verses 15 through 18, notice it says, Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Do you know what God is saying there? He is saying, I'm going to bring death to your wife. And you'll see that in a moment. I take away from you the desire of your eyes, that's his wife, with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep. What what is God doing? Using this as an object lesson through the prophet for the children of Israel. Nor shall your tears run down. In other words, his wife is going to die and he's not going to be able to weep. Sigh and silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head. Put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening my wife died. And the next morning, I did as I was commanded. He, he, he obeyed God. In other words, inside he's churning. But he's obeying God. Now why? Verse 19. And the people said to me, will you, not let, uh, will you not tell us what these things signify to us? You see, they wanted to know. They realized God was teaching them a lesson through the prophet. Will you not tell us what these things signify to us, that you behave so? And then I answered them. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. 
and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turban shall be on your heads, and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities, and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. So they were going to see this destruction come upon their own. And they weren't going to be able to weep. For that very same reason that Jeremiah was that object lesson. Because the magnitude of destruction would render all grief inadequate. So getting back now to our text in verse 6, there is that near sarcastic rebuke by the Lord. I want you to look at it. Verse 6, Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Now the reason for this was, as he's speaking, the reason for this was because of what the Lord had warned all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, it says, You are the children of the Lord your God. And notice what he says. And folks, there's a very important thought that we need to to take hold of here. You are the children of the Lord your God. In other words, you are different from the world. You are different from the heathens and the pagans who cut themselves and do all manner of things to themselves. You are different. You do not do what they do. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. That was a pagan practice. It wasn't even a traditional practice of of jewelry, except that it became that when they began to accept the pagan worship. I said Jewry, not jewelry, okay? Jewry, which is the Jews. It wasn't their practice. Look at verse 2. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I want this to be a lesson. There are a lot of other places, and I hope one day I'll be able to cover those particular verses. But folks, there are places in the scriptures that are telling us that we are God's people and we're not to act like the world acts. And we're not to do as the world does. We're not to let the world decide what we do with our bodies, with what we are, what God made us to be. Folks, please understand. We are God's people. If anything has happened previous to that, that's okay. But at this point, we are God's people now. We serve Him. Understand? All right. So the practices mentioned were those of the heathen nations. And the Lord forbid His people from doing those things. There wouldn't any longer be time for them to practice such things that the Lord had told them not to do. That's why, he, that's why it's kind of, a, uh, kind of a sarcastic thing that He's saying. There's no time for you to do what I already told you not to do. You understand now? I told you not to do this, but you don't have any time to do it. So God's being somewhat sarcastic with them. And then Jeremiah is told not to attend joyful celebrations or eat... Or drink with the merrymakers. And by the way, this is not a contradiction here. No matter how much warning 
Jeremiah has been giving the people, and even some of the famines that were going on at that time, and droughts that may have been going on at that time, the people were still doing things as normal. So, notice, Jeremiah is told not to attend joyful celebrations. In effect, not to attend weddings, or even to eat with the merrymakers. Look at verses 8 and 9 now of Jeremiah 16. Also you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and to drink. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. He says, I will cause to cease these things. I'll, I, will, I will bring them to, to nothing. They will be, they'll no longer be uh, the, the voice of gladness and, and all. So as for their wedding feasts, how could people celebrate with such a cloud of destruction hovering over their head? <clears throat> you see, the days were coming when the joyous voices of brides and bridegrooms would cease. In fact, all joy and gladness would flee from the land. Those who would become exiles were soon to form a funeral march and head toward Babylon. Now, let me ask you a question. How aware are the people of this global society of ours of the coming tribulation in these last days? How aware are the people of this global society? I'm not talking about you who know the Word of God and know that we're in the last days and, and terrible times are coming for the world. But how many people in the society, the global society, are aware of the, of, of the coming tribulation? Well, I want you to consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. Again, what, what is happening here is that uh, in Jeremiah's time, even though Jeremiah has been warning them, they have been listening to other voices. The voices of the false prophets who say, nothing's going to happen. You're going to have peace. God will deliver you. Just keep you know, offering your sacrifice in the temple and, and whatnot, and eventually everything will be okay. Everything will be cool. Jesus said this, Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44, looking to us, and in this time, and the days to come, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, now notice this, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ that he's talking about. Not the rapture of the church, but the second coming of Christ. For as in the days before the flood, they were doing what? They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. So things were as they are today. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Or I should say marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. That is not, a, uh, that is not really a statement about the rapture of the church. It's a statement that's saying, uh, in that day, one person is going to get, get caught off guard, and he's going to be taken, and another is going to be left in the earth for the sake of being here for the uh, millennial reign of Christ. The same for two women that will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's the world today. That is the world today. They're changing all the rules, folks, in society. The world is changing all the rules. And it's going to affect the church. It's going to affect the church. And it's affecting the church already. I'll talk about that more in just a moment. As Jeremiah spoke forth God's words of judgment now, going back to Jeremiah, as Jeremiah spoke forth God's words of judgment, and the people began to see those things coming to pass, they couldn't understand why this was happening to them. Why is this going on? Why is this going to take place? Look at verses 10 through 13 now of Jeremiah 16. And it shall be when you show this people all these words, and they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Do you know what that question is? What is our sin? What did we do wrong? They don't even know that they've done anything wrong. What is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? And then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, they have walked after other gods, and have served them, and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart. How many times have we seen that phrase in the book of Jeremiah? Each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. What would we be listening to if we listened to God? We would be listening to his word. We would be listening to his law. We would be listening to his statutes. We would be listening to his commandments. We would be listening to his mercies, to his grace. We would be listening to his directives. We would be listening to everything God is saying to us, which, by the way, doesn't change. It doesn't change. Man continues to change the rules for themselves. But God's rules, God's laws never change. They are perfect and they are eternal. God's law never changes. Notice verse 13. Therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know. Neither you nor your fathers. And there you shall serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. So here's some questions to consider. Didn't, didn't they know the terms of God's covenant? I would have to say they did because they had God's law. Didn't they know the terms of God's covenant and the extent of their own sins? They didn't even know the extent of their own sins because they changed all the rules. What is our iniquity?
People today don't consider themselves to be sinning or sinners. And if they have any idea that it is sin, they would say, well, sin's fun. Sin's great. Sin's grand. Let's not wait. And yet the consequences of sin continue to affect so many people. The consequences of sexual sin, the consequences of sins placed against the body like drugs and, and, and uh, alcohol and all of the things that, that destroy the body that God says we're to take care of. The problem was that they were led astray. The problem was that they were led astray by the false prophets and they became comfortable in their sins. And their collective conscience was dead. They became comfortable in their sins and their collective conscience was dead. That is where the world is today. They've become comfortable in their sins. And their conscience is dead because they've heard the false prophets. The sad thing is that that applies in the church as well. Because false prophets in the church are telling people today, get, get to know what God wants to give you, what God has for you. Listen, God has great things for God's people. But he's not going to keep us from the trials and tribulations of this life. But the trials and tribulations of this life, God will use to build us up and to mature us into, Christ, into the Christ-like attitudes that we are to have, into the Christ-likeness that we are to have in Jesus. And if Jesus had to tell his disciples, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Well, guess what? That's happening today. And obviously some people don't like to be hated, so they would rather be in a situation where, where you know, well, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of mingle with the things of the world. We'll try, we'll try to show them that we, we can find things in the Bible that can go along with, 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 with various things in New Age movement uh, teaching or, or in Hinduism or in Buddhism. And we could just kind of blend everything together. Because, you know, Jesus was, was, he was kind and, 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 uh, and gentle and meek and mild and all of these things. I, I tell you, look at a picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation, especially chapter 19. Where Jesus comes on a white horse with his eyes burning like fire. And out of his mouth comes a sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Coming to destroy the enemies of God. You can't cheapen who Jesus is, folks. And get away with it. Their unbiblical theology provided them a false assurance that God would never abandon His people or allow the Gentiles to desecrate the holy city and the temple. Oh, how wrong they were. They said, God's not going to let anybody touch that temple. It had been touched before. God's not going to let anybody take, you know, take the city over. It's His city. 
Yeah, but his people are more important to him. And his people forsook him. The Apostle Paul would write to Timothy concerning the last days. And listen to where we are right now. Now the Spirit expressly says, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. That means they've been in the faith, and now they've departed from the faith. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. And having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. It's as if a hot iron has touched their conscience and their conscience just went dead. No feeling to it. Over the last 30 some years, since Roe v. Wade, people are a lot less feeling toward fetuses, quote unquote, which are really human beings. What has happened? Consciences have been seared with a hot iron. It's the day we live in. We're sophisticated now. We have choice. But didn't God say, choose life? Choose me. Serve you this day who you will choose, or, or choose you this day who you will serve. Whether the gods on the other side of the river or the Amorites, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because God's word never changes. having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Forbidding to marry, an interesting thought. People commanding to abstain from foods. I know that we can go back to Paul's time and talk about the Gnostics who had those particular uh, thoughts and philosophies that they express to people, but the same thing happens today. Let's forbid, let's forbid to marry in the right way, male and female. Let's change that. Let's have organizations like PETA tell you that you you know you're not, you're, you know you you shouldn't wear leather and you shouldn't eat eat meat and and uh, they'll go to great extremes, you know. Even be violent if they have to be to, to make their points. What's wrong with this society? In his second letter to Timothy, Second Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I shared this on Sunday morning. They will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. He said, it comes back now to the desires of every person, individual, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Who are they? The false prophets. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. See, fables can change. But God's truth doesn't change. 
And Jesus doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. God never changes. God's Word never changes. The Word of God lasts forever. So Jeremiah made it clear to the people that they had become blind to their sinfulness, to the sinfulness of their ways. They were blind to it now. Just using the prophet Malachi for just a moment. The prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. If you'll go there and follow along with me, what what, uh, God is saying to His people, uh, to tie that into this idea that they are blind to their sinfulness, Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? God speaking to His people. And if I am master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. He's not just speaking to the people. He's speaking to the people's religious leaders. To the priests. The priest, if the priest didn't honor God as Father, if the priest didn't honor God as Lord, then we're in trouble. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? In other words, how have we sinned? And God says to them, you offered defiled food on my altar. But say, in what, have, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. So to them, they looked at the things of God as being contemptible. As many people today coming out of seminaries, in, in many cases, you know, liberal seminaries, just, you know, to uh, distinguish them from, from conservative seminaries, but nonetheless coming out of liberal semin- uh, seminaries say, you know, the Word of God is not altogether all that true. What are they saying? They're saying that God's Word is contemptible. It's crazy, isn't it? Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied Him? How have we done that? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Folks, do you see that? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's what they're saying. That's, that's what their attitude is. Where, where is it? We read it back a long time ago in the book of Isaiah, where people are saying that, that the bad is good and good is bad. Evil is good and good is evil. So what, what, what's been, you know, the... The underlying statement of many people today, hey man, that's bad. What do you mean by way, that's bad? Are you saying that's bad or is is it good? Oh, that's good. Well, then say it's good. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. I'm bad, man. I'm bad. You know, you're not bad. You're you're, you're really bad. Yeah, you're bad. I'm bad. Are, Are you saying you're good? Yeah, I'm good. Well, then say you're good. You see how my how man wants to confuse and confound. But how, how clear God is even saying that, uh, you know, over 2,000 years ago. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. God delights in them. It's just almost as if, if He's saying, you know, God loves everybody. I guess he, we might even see Hitler in heaven. You think so? You know that most people don't think Hitler's going to be in heaven. Even, even atheists who are asked the question, well, if there is a heaven, I don't think, I don't think Hitler's there. Well, don't go join him wherever he is. Or look at the next question. Where is the God of justice? 
And literally what they're saying is, there is no justice, we, we make our law. Malachi 3 now, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Yes, from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. But now, what does God say? Return to me. In other words, He says, come back to me. Repent of your sins. Return to me and I will return to you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? You see, every question is a question against God. Every question is a question against the way of God, the Word of God. In what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Now notice, this is God speaking to them. Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? This isn't tithes and offerings. God knew everything that they had done and not done. God knew every little trick in the book. God knew what they were doing. I'm going to give my tenth sheep to God. So the way they discovered that, or how they, how they chose the tenth sheep, is that they would line their sheep up, and they would have a stick. And every sheep would go under the stick, and when it came to the tenth one, that would be the one that they gave. But you see, what you need to realize is that they were the ones who lined up their sheep. And they took the stinkiest sheep, and the weakest sheep, and the ugliest sheep, and they put him number ten. That's what God was saying. Okay, well, you know, all the healthy ones go by. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, here's the tenth one. Oh, God, it's yours. And they give God the weakest and the most defiled. What was it that God was asking at, at Passover in Exodus? Give me the purest sheep. Give me the undefiled. And that was still part of of sacrificial law. But they gave God the worst. Makes you wonder, are we giving God the best or the worst of our life? And if we say it doesn't matter, guess what? It does. It matters that we give God the best. Evidently, God cared, didn't He? Enough to tell Him, you're robbing me. In your tithes and offerings. I ought to emphasize that again. You're robbing God in tithes and offerings. We don't know that, but God does, okay? And so they had not only repeated the sins of their fathers, they had done far worse. And that's what Jeremiah tells them. Instead of listening to the law of the Lord and turning from their sins, they had followed the dictates of their own evil hearts and refused to listen to and obey the word of their God. They had forgotten what had happened to the northern kingdom of Israel in that they were taken by Assyria into captivity due to their idolatry. The northern kingdom went first. About a hundred and some years before. They were taken into captivity due to their idolatry. And Jeremiah uses the imagery of that captivity to speak to Judah. Because notice verse 13. Therefore I will cast you out. That's the same word that is, that is describing what happens in captivity. When they're exiled, they're cast out of this land into a land they do not know. Neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. You know, when they were in Exodus, 
uh, I should say when they were in Egypt during the time of the Exodus, before the Exodus. But when they were in Egypt, they were in captivity and in slavery for 400 and some years, 430 years. So in, in that time, in that amount of time, there was the heaviness, there was the burden, there was the captivity, there was the slavery, there was the pain, there was the carrying. And, and you know, they built great cities for the Egyptians in that time. In effect, what they were doing was, was serving their gods. And God sent Moses to deliver them from that so that they would serve the one true God who would not treat them in that manner. Yet what did they do? Once God takes them out of Egypt, they go out into the wilderness, they complain to God. Eventually, they want to worship a God like they had worshipped probably in Egypt. And, and therefore, uh, we know what happens to them. Charlton Heston comes down and... Just, just trying to see if you're listening, if you're awake. If you're paying attention to me. We know what happens. So here they go, going to Babylon. What are they going to do? They ain't going to sit around the resort. They're going to go and work. They're going to go out there and, be, uh, and, and bleed and sweat nearly to death. Serving the gods of the Babylonians day and night. And God would show them no favor. God would violently, re violently remove his people from the land so that the land could be healed and the nation purified, you see. Now this is something we have to understand. We have to come back to the understanding of the land. God is going to remove his people, in, in essence, very violently from the land so that the land could be healed and the nation purified. So what I want to do is let's, let's jump forward to those years of devastation. Let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles 36. This is the time that all of this is going to take place. Notice, verses 11 and following. It's going to be a lot of stuff. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And notice this phrase, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. Zedekiah did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. In other words, he could have turned back to God for help, but he didn't. He was stubborn. And moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgress more and more. Notice, they're not getting better, they're getting worse. According to all the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. That's chapter 1. Now look at chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 now. Just going on. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. And I want you to notice this phrase, and if you mark anything down, mark this phrase, till there was no remedy. The wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. 
There would have been a remedy had they listened to God, had they repented of their sins, had they heard the prophets, had they heard the messengers, but they did not. They refused. They went against God. They went against His messengers. They went against His prophets. And there was, at that point, no remedy. Go on to the next chapter, you see, which is verse 17. We're in the same chapter, but I'm just saying, you know, the story here. Verse 17, Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young man with a sword in their house of the sanctuary. And I want you to notice this phrase, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. Do you know that the stories come out of that time that uh, the Hebrew children that were around at the time of this of this invasion and of this destruction, that the children themselves were taken and their heads were crushed on rocks. No compassion. By the way, that's the reason why God would come back against Babylon. And there is a tremendous judgment against Babylon. While they were supposed to be the the army to come and to take Israel into captivity, they went far beyond. And God says, because of that, I'm going to judge you. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the kings and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. And then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all, the, all of its palaces with fire, destroyed all of its, its precious possessions, and those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the king of Persia, or the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. There's the rest of the land. Until the land had enjoyed the Sabbaths. It needed to rest. And see, the people had disobeyed God by not giving the land its seven-year rest. Even the land was to have a year Sabbath, a Sabbath year, actually, to rest the land. Then God would restore and provide for his people. But they decided to work the land and work the land and work the land. And uh, uh, for 490 years, I mean, what happened? No Sabbath rest. So God says, my land has to rest seven years. They would be in captivity for seven years, 70 years. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So let me, let me conclude here now where we are. How far have we come as a nation? Do you think that the founding fathers of this great country or even those who lived even a hundred years ago would have tolerated what is going on today? Think about that. Think about it. Would they have tolerated the blatant sexual immorality, the pornography, the homosexuality, the like, the murder, the drug abuse, and so on and so forth? But slowly, slowly we as a society are getting used to these things until they become a normal part of societal life. Consider one more thing. Some psychologists today are saying that having sex with children does them no harm. And they're encouraging that within families. You know, we may be outraged with that kind of thinking now, but as things are going, what will people say in 20 years? 
if God doesn't, if Christ doesn't come. You know what's even sadder is to think, and, and we're reading an article <coughs> in World Magazine, which is a Christian publication, kind of like the Christian Newsweek. It's called World Magazine, but uh, there was an article there about uh, a trend in the uh, evangelical, quote unquote, evangelical church, where people today now are, are actually beginning to, to think, well, you know, these same-sex unions are probably all right. As a matter of fact, in one particular grouping of, of evangelicals, 52% now believe that it's okay. 52%. What's wrong with this picture? You see, God's word says it's not right. As dark as things are getting, as dark as this has been for us tonight, there is always hope. And in the middle of all that judgment, in the middle of all that deep and dark blackness that we have been reading about and seeing here, we can see the light of God shining through. I'm just going to read to you verses 14 and 15 of our text, because that's where we're going to start next week. But notice what, uh, what the Lord says. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but... The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. That's the hope. That's the bright spot. I didn't want to leave you in the darkness. I wanted you to see that there's hope. There's hope for Israel today. There's hope for this world today in the sense that Christ is still who he says he is and he's coming again and this is where we'll pick up next time Jeremiah giving the people a message of hope I mean let's close with the words of the prophet Habakkuk because this really sums up what, what we're going to see next week see today was the bad news next week is some of the good news Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2 says O Lord I have heard your speech and was afraid O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, there is wrath coming to this earth. There is wrath coming to this world. And... The Lord is coming back to restore, to retrieve what has all along always been His. But even in wrath, God remembers mercy. And we, and we, need, to be, we need to be awake and aware of what's going on in this world and especially in our country when we see moral decay because the more decay we see the more it says that we've moved away from the foundation of truth and the foundation of, of um, wisdom and the foundation of strength to 
desiring that which only pleases the self. And, and then you think of that statement, the dictates of their own evil hearts. But we have a God that has a greater love for our hearts and the hearts of every person. Because again, if we believe that God's word is true, then John 3.16 is the truest of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, God wants us to have life, not death. When God's people such as Israel or Judah, in their worst state, rejected the life of God, and the only consequence was having to face that kind of death that we've read about tonight as a judgment. Yet God said, I will still yet restore my people in the land. So guess who's in Israel today? Is that not God's word being fulfilled? And yet there's still a lot left to do with Israel. There's still a lot that they need to see. Because there's one day coming, and it's very soon. But one day every eye shall see their Messiah. And the scripture tells us every eye will see him whom they pierced. Every eye will see him. And they will weep and mourn, for they will recognize Jesus Christ. Let's pray.